Good evening. This is Tony Walker of the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. This week, I'm going to be reading you an E.F. Benson story called The Outcast. If you like the story and you like the podcast, please remember to subscribe, like, even give it a favourable review. And if you want to support me, you can hop over to my Patreon. There'll be links in the show notes. And sign up for exclusive stories, of which there are quite a lot now, including the whole of Dracula. Anyway, I hope you like the story. The Outcast by E.F. Benson When Mrs. Akers bought the gatehouse at Tarleton, which had stood so long without a tenant, and appeared in that very agreeable and lively little town as a resident, sufficient was already known about her past history to entitle her to friendliness and sympathy. Hers had been a tragic story, and the account of the inquest held on her husband's body when within a month of their marriage he had shot himself before her eyes was recent enough and of as full a report in the papers as to enable our little community of Tarleton to remember and run over the salient grimness of the case without need of inventing any further details, which otherwise it would have been quite capable of doing. Briefly, then, the facts had been as follows. Horace Akers appeared to have been a heartless fortune hunter, a handsome, plausible wretch, ten years younger than his wife. He had made no secret to his friends of not being in love with her, but of having a considerable regard for her more than considerable fortune. But hardly had he married her than his indifference developed into a violent dislike, accompanied by some mysterious, inexplicable dread of her. He hated and feared her, and on the morning of the very day when he had put an end to himself, he had begged her to divorce him. The case, he promised, would be undefended, and he would make it indefensible. She, poor soul, had refused to grant this, for, as corroborated by the evidence of friends and servants, she was utterly devoted to him, and stated with that quiet dignity which distinguished her throughout this ordeal, that she hoped that he was the victim of some miserable but temporary derangement, and would come to his right mind again. He had dined that night at his club, leaving his month-old bride to pass the evening alone, and had returned between eleven and twelve that night in a state of vile intoxication. He had gone up to her bedroom, pistol in hand, had locked the door, and his voice was heard screaming and yelling at her. Then followed the sound of one shot. On the table in his dressing-room was found a half-sheet of paper dated that day, and this was read out in court. The horror of my position, he had written, is beyond description and endurance. I can bear it no longer. My soul sickens. The jury, without leaving the court, returned the verdict that he had committed suicide while temporarily insane, and the coroner, at their request, expressed their sympathy and his own with the poor lady, who, as testified on all hands, had treated her husband with the utmost tenderness and affection. For six months Bertha Akers had travelled abroad, and then in the autumn she had bought Gatehouse at Tarleton, and settled down to the absorbing trifles which make life in a small country town so busy and strenuous. Our modest little dwelling is within a stone's throw of the Gatehouse, 
and when, on the return of my wife and myself from two months in Scotland, we found that Mrs. Akers was installed as a neighbour, Madge lost no time in going to call on her. She returned with a series of pleasant impressions. Mrs. Akers still on the sunny slope that leads up to the tableland of life which begins at forty years, was extremely handsome, cordial and charming in manner, witty and agreeable, and wonderfully well-dressed. Before the conclusion of her call, Madge, in country fashion, had begged her to dispose of formalities, and instead of a frigid return of the call, to dine with us quietly next day. Did she play bridge? Oh, that being so, we would just be a party of four, for her brothers, Charles Allington, had proposed himself for a visit. I listened to this with sufficient attention to grasp what Madge was saying, but what I was really thinking about was a chess problem which I was attempting to solve. But at this point I became acutely aware that her stream of pleasant impressions dried up suddenly, and she became stonily silent. She shut speech off as by the turn of a tap and glowered at the fire, rubbing the back of one hand with the fingers of another, as is her habit in perplexity. Go on, I said. She got up suddenly restless. All I have been telling you is literally and soberly true, she said. I, I thought Mrs. Akers charming and witty and good-looking and friendly. What more could you ask from a new acquaintance? And then, after I had asked her to dinner, I suddenly found for no earthly reason that I very much disliked her. I couldn't bear her. You said she was wonderfully well-dressed, I permitted myself to remark. If the Queen took the night... Don't be silly, said Madge. I am wonderfully well-dressed too. But behind all her agreeableness and charm and good looks, I suddenly felt there was something else, which I detested and dreaded. It's no use asking me what it was, because I haven't the slightest idea. If I knew what it was, the thing would explain itself. But I felt a horror... Nothing vivid, nothing close, you understand, but somewhere in the background. Can the mind have a turn, do you think, just as the body can, when for a second or two you suddenly feel giddy? I think it must have been that. Oh, I am sure it was that. But I'm glad I asked her to dine. I mean to like her. I shan't have a turn again, shall I? No, certainly not, I said. If the Queen refrained from taking the tempting knight. Oh, do stop your silly chess problem, said Madge. Bite him, Fungus. Fungus, so called because he is a son of humour and Gustavus Adolphus, rose from his place on the hearthrug and with a hoarse laugh nuzzled against my leg, which is his way of biting those he loves. Then the most amiable of bulldogs, who has a passion for the human race, lay down on my foot and sighed heavily. But Madge evidently wanted to talk, and I pushed the chessboard away. "'Tell me more about the horror,' I said. "'It was just horror,' she said. "'A sort of sickness of the soul.' I found my brain puzzling over some vague reminiscence, surely connected with Mrs. Akers, which those words mistily evoked. But the next moment that train of thought was cut short, for the old and sinister legend about the gatehouse came into my mind as accounting for the horror of which Madge spoke. In the days of Elizabethan religious persecutions, it had, then newly built, been inhabited by two brothers, of whom the elder, to whom it belonged, had mass said there every Sunday. Betrayed by the younger, he was arrested and racked to death. Subsequently, the younger, in a fit of remorse, hanged himself in the panelled parlour. 
Certainly there was a story that the house was haunted by his strangled apparition dangling from the beams, and the late tenants of the house, which had now stood vacant for over three years, had quitted it after a month's occupation, in consequence, so it was commonly said, of unaccountable and horrible sights. What was more likely then that Madge, who from childhood had been intensely sensitive to occult and psychic phenomena, should have caught on that strange wireless receiver which is characteristic of sensitives, some whispered message. Uh, but you know the story of the house, I said. Isn't it quite possible that something of that may have reached you? Uh, where did you sit, for instance? In the panelled parlour? She brightened at that. Ah, you wise man, she said. I never thought of that. That may account for it all. I hope it does. You should be left in peace with your chest for being so brilliant. I had occasion a half an hour later to go to the post office, a hundred yards up the high street, on the matter of a registered letter which I wanted to dispatch that evening. Dusk was gathering, but the red glow of sunset still smouldered in the west, sufficient to enable me to recognise familiar forms and features of passers-by. Just as I came opposite the post office, there approached from the other direction a tall, finely built woman, whom I felt sure I had never seen before. Her destination was the same as mine, and I hung on my step a moment to let her pass in first. Simultaneously I felt that I knew, in some vague, faint manner, what Madge had meant when she talked about a sickness of the soul. It was no nearer realisation to me than is the running of a tune in the head to the audible external hearing of it, and I attributed my sudden recognition of her feeling to the fact that in all probability my mind had subconsciously been dwelling on what she had said, and not for a moment did I connect it with any external cause. And then it occurred to me who, possibly, this woman was. She finished the transaction of her errand a few seconds before me, and when I got out into the street, again she was a dozen yards down the pavement, walking in the direction of my house and of the gatehouse. Opposite my own door I deliberately lingered, and saw her pass down the steps that led from the road to the entrance of the gatehouse. Even as I turned into my own door, the unbidden reminiscence which had eluded me before came out into the open, and I cast my net over it. It was her husband who, in the inexplicable communication he had left on his dressing-room table, just before he shot himself, had written, My soul sickens. It was odd, though scarcely more than that, for Madge to have used those identical words. Charles Allington, my wife's brother, who arrived next afternoon, is quite the happiest man whom I have ever come across. The material world, that perennial spring of thwarted ambition, Physical desire and perpetual disappointment is practically unknown to him. Envy, malice, and all uncharitableness are equally alien, because he does not want to obtain what anyone else has got, and has no sense of possession, which is queer since he is enormously rich. He fears nothing, he hopes for nothing, he has no abhorrences or affections, for all physical and nervous functions are in him the service of an intense inquisitiveness. He never passed a moral judgment in his life. He only wants to explore and know. Knowledge, in fact, is his entire preoccupation. And since chemists and medical scientists probe and mine in the world of tinctures and microbes 
far more efficiently than he could do, as he has so little care for anything that can be weighed or propagated, he devotes himself, absorbedly and ecstatically, to that world that lies about the confines of conscious experience. Anything not yet certainly determined appeals to him with the call of a trumpet. He ceases to take an interest in a subject as soon as it shows signs of assuming a practical and definite status. He was intensely concerned, for instance, in wireless transmission, until Signor Marconi proved that it came within the scope of practical science, and then Charles abandoned it as dull. I had seen him last two months before, when he was in a great perturbation, since he was speaking at a meeting of Anglo-Israelites in the morning, to show that the scone stone, which is now in the coronation chair at Westminster, was for certain the pillow on which Jacob's head had rested when he saw the vision at Bethel, was addressing the Psychical Research Society in the afternoon on the subject of messages received from the dead through automatic script, and in the evening was, by way of a holiday, only listening to a lecture on reincarnation. None of these things could as yet be definitely proved, and that was why he loved them. During the intervals when the occult and the fantastic did not occupy him, he is, in spite of his fifty years and wizened mien, exactly like a schoolboy of eighteen back on his holidays and brimming with superfluous energy. I found Charles already arrived when I got home next afternoon after a round of golf. He was betwixt and between the serious and the holiday mood, for he had evidently been reading to Madge from a journal concerning reincarnation, it was rather severe to me. Golf, he said with insulting scorn. What is there to know about golf? You hit a ball in the air. I was a little sore over the events of the afternoon. That's just what I don't do, I said. I hit it along the ground. Well, it doesn't matter where you hit it, said he. It's all subject to known laws. But the guess, the conjecture, there's the thrill and the excitement of life. The charlatan with his new cure for cancer, the automatic writer with his messages from the dead, the reincarnationist with his positive assertions that he was Napoleon or a Christian slave. They are the people who advance knowledge. You have to guess before you know. Even Darwin saw that when he said you could not investigate without a hypothesis. So what's your hypothesis in this minute? I asked. Why, that we've all lived before, and that we're all going to live again here on this same earth. Any other conception of a future life is impossible. Are all the people who have been born and have died since the world emerged from chaos going to become inhabitants of some future world? What a squash, you know, my dear Madge. Now, I know what you're going to ask me. If we've all lived before, why can't we remember it? But that's so simple. If you remembered being Cleopatra, you would go on behaving like Cleopatra. And what would Tarleton say? Judas Iscariot, too. Fancy knowing you had been Judas Iscariot. You couldn't get over it. You'd commit suicide, or cause everybody who was connected with you to commit suicide from their horror of you. Or imagine being a grocer's boy who knew he'd been Julius Caesar. Of course, sex doesn't matter. Souls, as far as I understand, are sexless. Just sparks of life, which are put into physical envelopes. Some male, some female. You might have been King David, Madge. And poor Tony here, one of his wives. That would be wonderfully neat, said I. Charles broke out into a shout of laughter. It would indeed, he said. But I won't talk sense any more to you scoffers. I'm absolutely tired out, I will confess, with thinking. 
I want to have a pretty lady to come to dinner and talk to her as if she was just herself and I myself and nobody else. I want to win two and sixpence at bridge with the expenditure of enormous thought. I want to have a large breakfast tomorrow and read the Times afterwards and go to Tony's club and talk about crops and golf and Irish affairs and peace conferences and all the things that don't matter one straw. You're going to begin your programme tonight, dear, said Madge. A very pretty lady is coming to dinner and we're going to play bridge afterwards. Madge and I were ready for Mrs. Akers when she arrived, but Charles was not yet down. Fungus, who has a wild adoration for Charles, quite unaccountable since Charles has no feeling for dogs, was helping him to dress, and Madge, Mrs. Akers and I waited for his appearance. It was certainly Mrs. Akers whom I had met last night at the door of the post office, but the dim light of sunset had not enabled to me to see how wonderfully handsome she was. There was something slightly Jewish about her profile, the high forehead, the very full-lipped mouth, the bridged nose, the prominent chin, all suggested rather than exemplified an Eastern origin. But when she spoke, she had that rich softness of utterance, not quite hoarseness, but not quite of the clear distinctness of tone which characterises northern nations, something southern, something eastern. "'I'm bound to ask one thing,' she said, when, after the usual greetings, we stood round the fireplace waiting for Charles. "'But have you got a dog?' Madge moved towards the bell. "'Yes, but he shan't come down if you dislike dogs,' she said. "'He's wonderfully kind, but I know.' "'Ah, it's not that,' said Mrs. Aker. "'I adore dogs.' but I only wish to spare your dog's feelings. Though I adore them, they hate me, and they're terribly frightened of me. There's something anti-canine about me. It was too late to say more. Charles's steps clattered in the hall outside, and Fungus was hoarse and amused. Next moment the door opened, and the two came in. Fungus came in first. He lolloped in a festive manner into the middle of the room, sniffed and snored in greeting, and then turned tail. He slipped and skidded on the parquet outside, and we heard him bundling down the kitchen stairs. Rude dog, said Madge. Charles, let me introduce you to Mrs. Akers, my brother Mrs. Akers, Sir Charles Allington. Our little table of four would not permit of separate conversations, and general topics spring up like mushrooms, wilted and died at their very inception. What mood possessed the others I did not at that time know, but for myself... I was only conscious of some fundamental distaste of the handsome, clever woman who sat on my right and seemed quite unaffected by the withering atmosphere. She was charming to the eye. She was witty to the ear. She had grace and gracefulness. And all the time she was something terrible. But by degrees, as I found my own distaste increasing, I saw that my brother-in-law's interest was growing correspondingly keen the pretty lady whose presence at dinner he had desired and obtained, was enchaining him. Not so, I began to guess, for her charm and her prettiness, but for some purpose of study. And I wondered whether it was her beautiful Jewish profile that was confirming to his mind some Anglo-Israelitish theory, whether he saw in her fine brown eyes the glance of the seer and the clairvoyante, or whether he divined in her some reincarnation of one of the famous or the infamous dead. Certainly she had for him some fascination beyond that of the legitimate charm of a very handsome woman. He was studying her with intense curiosity. And are you comfortable in the gatehouse? He suddenly rapped out at her as if asking some question of which the answer was crucial. 
Ah, but so comfortable, she said. Such a delightful atmosphere. I have never known a house that felt so peaceful and homelike. Or is it merely fanciful to imagine that some houses have a sense of tranquility about them, and others are uneasy and even terrible? Charles stared at her a moment in silence before he recollected his manners. No, there may easily be something in it, I should say, he answered. One can imagine long centuries of tranquillity actually investing a home with some sort of psychical aura perceptible to those who are sensitive. She turned to Madge. And yet I have heard a ridiculous story that the house is supposed to be haunted, she said. If it is, it is surely haunted by delightful, contented spirits. Dinner was over. Madge rose. Come in very soon, Tony, she said to me, and let's get to our bridge. But her eyes said, don't leave me long alone with her. Charles turned briskly round when the door had shut. An extremely interesting woman, he said. Very handsome, said I. Is she? I didn't notice. Her mind, her spirit, that's what intrigued me. What is she? What's behind? Why did fungus turn tail like that? Queer, too, about her finding the atmosphere of the gatehouse so tranquil. The late tenants, I remember, didn't find that soothing touch about it. How do you account for that? I asked. There may be several explanations. You might say that the late tenants were fanciful, imaginative people, and that the present tenant is a sensible, matter-of-fact woman. Certainly she seemed to be. Or, I suggested. He laughed. Well, you might say, mind I don't say so, but you might say that the spiritual tenants of the house find Mrs. Akers a congenial companion and want to retain her, so they keep quiet and don't upset the cook's nerves. Somehow this answer exasperated and jarred on me. What do you mean, I said? The spiritual tenant of the house, I suppose, is the man who betrayed his brother and hanged himself. Why should he find a charming woman like Mrs. Akers a congenial companion? Charles got up briskly. Usually he is more than ready to discuss such topics, but tonight it seemed that he had no such inclination. Didn't Madge tell us not to be long, he asked. You know how I run on if once I get onto that subject, Tony, so don't give me the opportunity. But why did you say that? I persisted. Because I was talking nonsense. You know me well enough to be aware that I'm a habitual criminal in that respect. It was indeed strange to find how completely both the first impression that Madge had formed of Mrs. Akers and the feeling that followed so quickly on its heels were endorsed by those who, during the next week or two, did a neighbour's duty to the newcomer. All were loud in praise of her charm, her pleasant, kindly wit, her good looks, her beautiful clothes, but even while this lobgazang was in full chorus, it would suddenly die away, and an uneasy silence descended, which somehow was more eloquent than all the appreciative speech. Odd, unaccountable little incidents had occurred which were whispered from mouth to mouth till they became common property. The same fear that Fungus had shown of her was exhibited by another dog. A parallel case occurred when she returned the call of our parson's wife. Mrs. Dowlett had a cage of canaries in the window of her drawing-room. These birds had manifested symptoms of extreme terror when Mrs. Akers entered the room, beating themselves against the wires of their cage and uttering the alarm note. She inspired some sort of inexplicable fear over which we, as trained and civilised human beings, had control, so that we behaved ourselves. But animals, without that check, gave way altogether to it. 
even as Fungus had done. Mrs. Akers entertained. She gave charming little dinner parties of eight, with a couple of tables at bridge to follow. But over these evenings there hung a blight and a blackness. No doubt the sinister story of the panelled parlour contributed to this. The curious secret dread of her, of which, as on that first evening at my house, she appeared to be completely unconscious, differed very widely in degree. Most people, like myself, were conscious of it, but only very remotely so, and we found ourselves at the gatehouse behaving quite as usual, though with this unease in the background. But with a few, and most of all with Madge, she grew into a sort of obsession. She made every effort to combat it. Her will was entirely set against it, but her struggle seemed only to establish its power over her. The pathetic and pitiful part was that Mrs. Akers from the first had taken a tremendous liking to her, and used to drop in continually, calling first to Madge at the window in that pleasant, serene voice of hers to tell Fungus that the hated one was imminent. Then came a day when Madge and I were bidden to a party at the gatehouse on Christmas evening. This was to be the last of Mrs. Aker's hospitalities for the present, since she was leaving immediately afterwards for a couple of months in Egypt. So with this remission ahead, Madge almost gleefully accepted the bidding, but when the evening came, she was seized with so violent an attack of sickness and shivering that she was utterly unable to fulfil her engagement. A doctor could find no physical trouble to account for this. It seemed that the anticipation of her evening alone caused it, and here was the culmination of her shrinking from our kindly and pleasant neighbour. She could only tell me that her sensations, as she began to dress for the party, were like those of that moment in sleep, when somewhere in the drowsy brain nightmare is ripening. Something independent of her will revolted at what lay before her. Spring had begun to stretch herself in the lap of winter, when next the curtain rose on this veiled drama of forces, but dimly comprehended and shudderingly conjectured. But then indeed nightmare ripened swiftly in broad noon, and this was the way of it. Charles Allington had come to stay with us five days before Easter, and expressed himself as humorously disappointed to find that the subject of his curiosity was still absent from the gatehouse. On the Saturday morning before Easter he appeared very late for breakfast, and Madge had already gone her ways. I rang for a fresh teapot, and while this was on its way he took up the Times. "'I only read the outside page of it,' he said. "'The rest is too full of mere materialistic dullnesses.' politics, sports, money market. He stopped and passed the paper over to me. There, where I'm pointing, he said, among the deaths, the first one. What I read was this. Akers, Bertha, died at sea, Thursday night, 30th March, and by her own request buried at sea, received by a wireless from P&O steamer Peshawar. He held out his hand for the paper again and turned over the leaves. Lloyds, he said. The Peshawar arrived at Tilbury yesterday afternoon. The burial must have taken place somewhere in the English Channel. On the afternoon of Easter Sunday, Madge and I motored out to the golf links three miles away. She proposed to walk along the beach just outside the dunes while I had my round and returned to the clubhouse for tea in two hours' time. The day was one of the most lucid spring. A warm southwest wind bowled white clouds along the sky and their shadows jovially scudded over the sandhills. We had told her of Mrs. Aker's death, and from that moment something dark and vague 
which had been lying over her mind since the autumn, seemed to join this fleet of the shadows of clouds and leave her in sunlight. We parted at the door of the clubhouse, and she set out on her walk. Half an hour later, as my opponent and I were waiting on the fifth tee where the road crosses the links for the couple in front of us to move on, a servant from the clubhouse scudding along the road caught sight of us and, jumping from his bicycle, came to where we stood. "'You wanted at the clubhouse, sir,' he said to me. "'Mrs. Carford was walking along the shore and she found something left by the tide. A body, sir. It was in a sack, but the sack was torn and she saw. It upset her very much, sir. We thought it best to come for you.' I took the boy's bicycle and went back to the clubhouse as fast as I could turn the wheel. I felt sure I knew what Madge had found, and knowing that, realised the shock. Five minutes later she was telling me her story in gasps and whispers. The tide was going down, she said, and I walked along the high water mark. There were pretty shells, I was picking them up, and then I, I saw it in front of me, just shapeless, like a sack, and then as I came nearer, it took shape. There were knees and elbows. It moved. It rolled over. And where the head was, the sack was torn, and I saw her face. Her eyes were open, Tony, and I fled. All the time I felt it was rolling along after me. Oh, Tony, she's dead, isn't she? She won't come back to her gatehouse. Do you promise me? There's something awful. I wonder if I guess. The sea gives her up. The sea won't suffer her to rest in it. The news of the finding had already been telephoned to Tarleton, and soon a party of four men with a stretcher arrived. There was no doubt as to the identity of the body, for though it had been in the water for three days, no corruption had come to it. The weights with which at burial it had been laden must by some strange chance have been detached from it, and by a chance stranger yet, it had drifted to the shore closest to her home. That night it lay in the mortuary, and the inquest was held on it next day, though it was a bank holiday. From there it was taken to the gatehouse and coffined, and it lay in the panelled parlour for the funeral on the morrow. Madge, after that one hysterical outburst, had completely recovered herself, and on the Monday evening, she made a little wreath of the spring flowers which the early warmth had called into blossom in the garden, and I went across with it to the gatehouse. Though the news of Mrs. Acre's death and the subsequent finding of the body had been widely advertised, there had been no response from relations or friends, and as I laid the solitary wreath on her coffin, a sense of the utter loneliness of what lay within seized and encompassed me and then a portent no less took place before my eyes. Hardly had the freshly gathered flowers been laid on the coffin than they all drooped and wilted, the stalks of the daffodils bent, and their bright chalices closed, the odour of the wallflowers died, and they withered as I watched. What did it mean that even the petals of spring shrank and were moribund? I told Madge nothing of this, and she, as if through some pang of remorse, was determined to be present next day at the funeral. No arrival of friends or relations had taken place, and from the gatehouse there came none of the servants. They stood in the porch as the coffin was brought out of the house, 
and even before it was put into the hearse, had gone back again and closed the door. So, at the cemetery on the hill above Tarleton, Madge and her brother and I were the only mourners. The afternoon was densely overcast, though we got no rainfall, and it was with these thick clouds above and the sea mist drifting between the gravestones that we came, after the service in the cemetery chapel, to the place of internment. And then, I can hardly write of it now, when it came for the coffin to be lowered into the grave, it was found that by some faulty measurement it, it could not descend, for the excavation was not long enough to hold it. Madge was standing close to us, and at this moment I heard her sob. And the kindly earth will not receive her, she whispered. There was an awful delay. The diggers must be sent for again, and meantime the rain had begun to fall thick and tepid. For some reason, perhaps some outlying feeler of Madge's obsession had wound a tentacle round me. I felt that I must know that the earth had gone to earth, but I could not suffer Madge to wait, so, in this miserable pause, I got Charles to take her home, and then returned. Pick and shovel were busy, and soon the resting place was ready. The interrupted service continued. A handful of wet earth splashed on the coffin lid, and when all was over, I left the cemetery still feeling, I knew not why, that all was not over. Some restlessness and want of certainty possessed me, and instead of going home, I fared forth into the rolling, wooded country inland with the intention of walking off these bat-like terrors that flapped around me. The rain had ceased, and the blurred sunlight penetrated the sea mist which still blanketed the fields and woods and for half an hour, moving briskly, I endeavoured to fight down some fantastic conviction that had gripped my mind in its claws. I refused to look straight at that conviction, telling myself how fantastic, how unreasonable it was. But as often as I put out a hand to throttle it, there came the echo of Madge's words. The sea will not suffer her. The kindly earth will not receive her and if I could shut my eyes to that, there came some remembrance of the day she died, and of half-forgotten fragments of Charles's superstitious belief in reincarnation. The whole thing, incredible though its component parts were, hung together with a terrible tenacity. Before long the rain began again, and I turned, meaning to go by the main road into Tarleton, which passes in a wide-flung curve some half-mile outside the cemetery, but as I approached the path through the fields, which, leaving the less direct route, passes close to the cemetery and brings you by a steeper and shorter descent into the town, I felt myself irresistibly impelled to take it. I told myself, of course, that I wished to make my wet walk as short as possible, but at the back of my mind was the half-conscious but no less imperative need to know by ocular evidence that the grave by which I had stood that afternoon had been filled in, and that the body of Mrs. Akers now lay tranquil beneath the soil. My path would be even shorter if I passed through the graveyard, and so presently I was fumbling in the gloom for the latch of the gate and closed it again behind me. Rain was falling now thick and sullenly, 
and in the bleared twilight I picked my way among the mounds and slipped on the dripping grass, and there in front of me was the newly turned earth. All was finished. The gravediggers had done their work and departed, and earth had gone back again into the keeping of the earth. It brought me some great lightening of the spirit to know that, and I was on the point of turning away when a sound of a stir from the heaped soil caught my ear, and I saw a little stream of pebbles mixed with clay trickle down the side of the mound above the grave. The heavy rain, no doubt, had loosened the earth, and then came another and yet another, and with terror gripping my heart I perceived that this was no loosening from without, but from within. For to right and left the piled soil was falling away with the press of something from below. Faster and faster it poured off the grave, and ever higher at the head of it rose a mound of earth pushed upwards from beneath. Somewhere out of sight there came the sound as of creaking and breaking wood, and then through that mound of earth there protruded the end of the coffin. The lid was shattered, loose pieces of the boards fell off it, and from within the cavity there faced me white features and wide eyes. All this I saw while sheer terror held me motionless. Then, I suppose, came the breaking point, and with such panic as surely man never felt before, I was stumbling away among the graves and racing towards the kindly human lights of the town below. I went to the parson who had conducted the service that afternoon with my incredible tale and an hour later he, Charles Allington, and two or three men from the undertakers were on the spot. They found the coffin completely disinterred, lying on the ground by the grave which was now three-quarters full of the earth which had fallen back into it. After what had happened, it was decided to make no further attempt to bury it, and the next day the body was cremated. Now, it is open to anyone who may read this tale to reject the incident of this emergence of the coffin altogether, and account for the other strange happenings by the comfortable theory of coincidence. He can certainly satisfy himself that one Bertha Akers did die at sea on this particular Thursday before Easter, and was buried at sea. There is nothing extraordinary about that. Nor is it the least impossible that the weight should have slipped from the canvas shroud, and that the body should have been washed ashore on the coast by Tarleton. Why not Tarleton as well as any other little town near the coast? Nor is there anything inherently significant in the fact that the grave, as originally dug, was not of sufficient dimensions to receive the coffin. That all these incidents should have happened to the body of a single individual is odd, but then the nature of coincidence is to be odd. They form a startling series, but unless coincidences are startling, they escape observation altogether. So, if you reject the last incident here recorded, or account for it by some local disturbance, an earthquake, or the breaking of a spring just below the grave, you can comfortably recline on the cushion of coincidence. For myself, I give no explanation of these events, though my brother-in-law brought forward one with which he himself is perfectly satisfied. Only the other day he sent me, with considerable jubilation, a copy of some extracts from a medieval treatise on the subject of reincarnation, which sufficiently indicates his theory. The original work was in Latin, 
which, mistrusting my scholarship, he kindly translated for me. I transcribe his quotations exactly as he sent them to me. We have these certain instances of his reincarnation. In one, his spirit was incarnated in the body of a man, in the other in that of a woman, fair of outward aspect and of a pleasant conversation, but held in dread and in horror by those who came into more than casual intercourse with her. She, it is said, died on the anniversary of the day of which he hanged himself, after the betrayal, but of this I have no certain information. What is sure is that when the time came for her burial, the kindly earth would receive her not. But though the grave was dug deep and well, it spewed her forth again. Of the man in whom his cursed spirit was reincarnated, it is said that being on a voyage when he died, he was cast overboards with weights to sink him, but the sea would not suffer him to rest in her bosom, but slipped the weights from him and cast him forth again onto the coast. How be it when the full time of his expiation shall have come and his deadly sin forgiven, the corporal body which is the cursed receptacle of his spirit shall at length be purged with fire, and so he shall, in the infinite mercy of the Almighty, have rest and shall wander no more. That was The Outcast by E.F. Benson. Hope you liked it. Um, I was going to say something about the story. I'm not going to say much about E.F. Benson because we've done a few of his stories before. So it would be endlessly repetitive. So, you know, basically he is possibly, to me, the best writer of ghost stories in his period. Some people may be outraged at that and be like, no, M.R. James or, you know, Sheridan Lefano. And I know they weren't exactly, there was some overlap in times there. But I think Benson's the best. There you go. I find some of his stories genuinely chilling, like this one, The Room in the Tower, The House with the Brick Kiln. I mean, there are others, but those are just three that come to mind. So let's just run over the story itself. First of all, we're introduced to Mrs. Bertha Akers. I don't know if the, if the name is significant. Sometimes writers put names that mean something. Um, Akers, Akers. Acre in the Holy Land, I don't know. And it's seen through the eyes of Tony and Madge, who are an upper-middle-class couple living in a little village called Tarleton. And the first thing we hear about Mrs Acres is that her husband shot himself, and he was a bit of a cad, possibly a prig and a bounder as well, and he shot himself. But it's because he there's something, he's sickness of his soul, and he begins to loathe her. So that's our first thing. Our first clue. And of course, what it does is make us think, ooh, we've read enough stories before. We know the fact that this is put so early on is something we should listen out for. So it's it, there is no, you know, halfway through, go, oh, that Mrs. Akers is the one to watch. You know, we know that from the outset, and that's fine. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that at all. And the, ne the next uh, scene is we have kind of a picture painted of a domestic scene of little home in this beautiful little English village. It sounds like somewhere in Kent to me, or Sussex possibly. And uh, this lovely little village. And there are, you can see, of course, E.F. Benson was most famous for his Map and Lucia novels, which are, they are kind of um, uh, fun poking and humorous novels at the, the stories about the manners and the doings of the uh, upper middle class. We had this also in a recent one, How Fear Departed the Long Gallery. 
And this story is written in two styles. First of all, we have this uh, romance of manners, and then we have a really genuinely horrible story, a horror story. And the two are in the same receptacle, if you like. It's a story about the same incidents, but it's looked at through a completely different mood and feeling. Anyway, so we have, first of all, we told about Mrs. Akers and we told she moves into this lovely little village and everything's rather lovely and they're all good country folk and they do this and that and the other and everybody's nice and they, they say hello to each other. And then we have um, Charles Arlington, who's, a, a, again, a f he begins as a pretty fun character and I think he remains most of the time as a fun character. But at the very end, when he um, shows the notices about her death, um, he's a bit more serious then. He's not the same character almost. I mean, he is, of course, because real people can be both funny and serious. But in stories, particularly short stories, they tend just to occupy one of those spaces. But, you know, he, he does both of those in this. And the job of the first speech that he his interest in reincarnation is to set us up for the idea that um, a, a spirit can be reincarnated in either a male or a female body. It doesn't matter on its original biological sex so uh, that sets us up and we don't kind of get that till the very end it's it, you know i often talk about this how you plant something and it becomes as a surprise where you go aha later on at the end whereas if you just introduced that at the end you would have gone yeah that's a bit corny now you're explaining after the event so it's just a a matter of where you put the information if you put it before the the, the payoff then it's like yeah oh cool that was clever and if you put it after it's like yeah that was lame so, you know, he does that and he does it well, you know. And then we hear the story about, apparently unrelated, about these two brothers who lived in the gatehouse during, who one was a Catholic and had a mass and his brother ratted on him and had him um, racked to death, which isn't a very nice way to go. I I've never been on a rack. I've seen some in museums and also at Chillingham Castle. But yeah, I'm sure I'll talk about that another time. But um, yeah, not a nice thing to do. And he feels very guilty about it. So we see that the story, in a sense, is about us seeing in Mrs. Akers the punishment for a sin that, that goes on. And we think about, like, the Flying Dutchman or the Wandering Jew, and these are characters that wander the earth because of some sin, and they can't rest until the sin is paid off or, uh, at the end. And this is what we see. Though usually in a story these days, or most days, we would be shown how the sin was paid off. What did the sinner do to make things right? And Mrs. Akers doesn't do any of that. I mean, she's perfectly pleasant. And if she'd maybe done a saintly thing, she would have got away with one reincarnation. But because she's just been rather pleasant and good company and making up force for bridge, it's taken her rather longer. But in the end, it does appear that that's what she achieved. I think that's what the final notice that the translations from Latin are. We get the Latin notice at the end to add gravitas and age. And I was listening to a podcast, I think it's called Esoterica, and it was about the use of, in Lovecraft's work, Lovecraft and Poe before him, and this the podcaster makes these points, use these titles of books. And Tolkien does this as well, of course. And you reference an earlier book, which can either be a real book or a made-up book, and it adds gravitas and authority to your story. And this is what he's doing here, the fact it was in Latin, I think. Yep. You know, of course, M.R. James does that all the time as well. And then we have the end, uh, which to me, I mean, the wrap-up is this Latin notice, but the actual end stage is when he goes for a walk on his own in terrible weather and then he sees the coffin breaking open. 
So when we want to write scary fiction, what we do is we make our protagonist alone, we make the weather bad, and we make something bad happen to him, usually when it's gloomy and dark. And everybody does this, including me. It's hard to make things scary sitting in a park on a lovely day in June, surrounded by lots of other people, isn't it? But but I'm sure it's been done. And uh, But it, this is the traditional way. And it works. That horrible picture of the coffin rising up in slow-mo, you can just see, well, you could actually murder that as a as a film, what I mean by that, butcher it. You could make it really not work and be too obvious. But given this, this has all been conjured in our imaginations through E.F. Benson's wonderful use of language and use of sensory description to put us right there in that graveyard on that gloomy evening with the coffin rising up. And I think that works really well. It even gave me a chill. And so the theme seems to be about sin and the paying off of sin down many lifetimes. And in that, it's not unusual. We talked about the Flying Dutchman and the Wandering Jew, these ideas that that is what happens. And I made some lighthearted comment that you could have done it quicker. But then we think this happened at Easter. It was about a betrayal. The, the body was at sea for three days. And then there was a resurrection. Now... Is that a coincidence? There is a mention of Judas Iscariot as a, as a traitor in the story, isn't there? His name's mentioned. So is this resurrection that occurs around Easter after three days at sea, although, of course, in the Easter story, Jesus wasn't at sea, but he was in the tomb for three days. And the sea can be understood as a tomb. It's a swallowing, isn't it? It's, a, it's, a, it's hidden away. It's swallowed. Benson's father was an archbishop, his brother was a priest. I may do, he's got two brothers. I've got a volume of their stories. I may do Basil Netherby one of these days, although it's been done rather wonderfully by Bite Sized Audio and probably others. But I may still do it because it's a great story. So back to the theme. So what what's he saying? I mean, there's nothing explicit here, but it just seems, wow, this is... Um... I remember Jonah was in The Whale as well, which is a similar idea to being in the tomb. And Jonah's time in the, in the, um, in the whale is understood by some theologians as a prefiguring of Christ's time in the tomb because a lot of Christian theology, not a lot, but a, a, an important part, looks back at the Old Testament and sees how the Messiah was was prophesied. And, the, you know, and of, this is one of the things that they see as a symbolism of Christ's time in the tomb. Although it's evil, so it's like an antichrist. It's an anti-Christian resurrection at Easter and I wonder whether he was doing deliberately or not and I honestly don't know I, I looked at I had a, you know a Google for any reviews of the story and you can find loads of versions of the story and everybody's trying to sell you it, and here it is on Amazon and you know various people talk about the anthology that it comes from but I really wanted somebody to dig into this theme and I haven't found it so if you do know put it put it in the comments you know uh, do a comment yeah comment mm. so Moving on to less related topics, um, you'll notice that um, I've been going through a little bit of a rebranding of the podcast. First of all, I moved podcast hosts for financial reasons, really, to Buzzsprout, who were a big podcast host, and I'm very pleased with them so far. So shout out to Buzzsprout. I don't have an affiliate link. I wish I did so in case you wanted to start the podcast. Then I'd give you a code and they would pay me something or I don't know is how it works. But Buzz, Buzzsprout allow me to um, have some adverts on the podcast as it is. 
So the podcast mainly goes out in two forms. First of all, it goes out as an audio only, and that's distributed through Buzzsprout and goes out to various people like Spotify, who are do the lion's share. But then Apple do quite a lot and Google do a few, and then there are much smaller ones um, down the line. None of these guys pay me for the use of my material, not that I'm bitter, but say I was a musician, they would at least pay me something for using my material, but they don't. But Buzzsprout allows me to tag adverts on, so in the audio only, you may hear adverts. And I am trying to make that germane to the podcast, but some of them may not be as germane, I like that word, as um, as you might like. Anyway, where were we? Where were we? So yeah, adverts on the other thing. Now, if you consume this through YouTube, which is a kind of video. And on YouTube, I do some stories that are just video of me reciting a story or telling a story, but the bulk of them are just um, the same audio repurposed from the audio. And YouTube tags its adverts on. So they're nothing to do with me either, but YouTube kindly, wonderfully do give me some money. And it actually, this is what pays me to do this really. So uh, God bless YouTube. It just occurred to me you probably care very little about all of that. I was just kind of explaining where the adverts come from and that YouTube adverts are separate from the podcast ad adverts such as they are. There's not many of the podcast adverts. And that leads me to say, if you did want to actually have no adverts, because I actually deliver all of this stuff to my patrons, there's different memberships. There's Apple Podcasts Connect. They get a, a flack, a high-quality sound, qu better than this uh, sound quality to pick up the nuances on <laughs> mistakes depending how you want to look at it, then you can join through YouTube, you can pay up through Substack, and all of these will get the members-only stories, which don't have adverts. And they are usually also post a non-advert version of uh, the story anyway, just for people who have signed up through the free memberships, because you can be a free member on Substack and uh, Patreon, I give them anyway. But anyway, ramble, ramble, ramble. Again, you probably don't care. Um, I may get a new logo. I'm in discussion with somebody about a new logo. I've done. I've changed the thumbnails. There was this idea that I would introduce the stories personally rather than just go, you know, the lock draw. The lock draw is very dear to me, actually, and uh, the Hartwood Institute music. But again, some people didn't like it. So I thought, well, let's see what happens. We'll change it and see what happens. Did a poll and asked, what do people really want? Did they want... Not my. I didn't put my stories in. I put other people's stories in. Did they want... Classic ghost stories, such as E.F. Benson, M.R. James, blah, blah, blah. And they said, yeah, 54% of people wanted those above everything else. So I thought, this is why I'm doing an E.F. Benson, even though other people do them really well. So I will see whether, you know, people say I like these, but actually if they don't don't watch them or listen to them, even though, you know, it's like saying, I, I really believe in public transport, I just don't use it. I do use it, actually. But, you know, that's the kind of thing. So it might be the people saying, yeah, we want classic ghost stories. But my experience is they're not the highest viewed ones, but we'll we'll give it a shot and see how it goes. Uh, and then the others were equally split between kind of classic Victorian stroke Edwardian yarns. I mean, I know Sherlock Holmes story do loads of those and bite-sized audio do loads of those. And they do them really, really well. They can't be bettered. You know, Father Brown, Sherlock Holmes, and they get massive views. So there's clearly an audience there wasn't many of my lot, my lot, that's you lot, wanted those, okay? The other one was the the weird tales. I mean, Horror Babble has done tons of weird tales. Lovecraft, all the Lovecraft people as well, does massively well with them. And people, dad, didn't want those. And then there was like the new weird and there's people like um, 
Ligotti and Aikman to an extent and Led Baron and whose stories are depart from reality, really, the new weird, I would say. There's, it, it's actually quite surreal and dreamlike, a lot of it. Even we did a Bruno Schultz story, and he isn't new, but I would say it falls into that category. Not many people wanted those. And then I said, well, the literary stories, and I'm thinking about Edith Wharton and Shirley Jackson. They've done really well for me, you know. People absolutely watch those. No, not so much. People didn't. I think they were the next one up at 14%. And that was just market research. So what we'll do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to deliver classic ghost stories and see how we get on. And if and if that isn't actually what people want in the same way, you know, I support public transport, but I don't use it, then we will see and we'll change. Okay, this is all my mark. I'm just, woof, it's full of my, my head. I'm putting all these stories up. Um, I've done a lot of stories in advance and scheduled for the future. Scheduled, that might be to you. Um, scheduled for the future because we're on a barge next week. Now, last time we went on a barge, which was a year ago, I had to explain to non-British people what a barge is. I'm suspecting probably that they're in New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, India, people who speak English, but they don't know what a barge is. So these are from the 1700s, really. It was a, an industrial waterway system was created in the UK. It was to move heavy uh, industrial revolution stuff, coal, massive across the country, pulled by horses. But then the railways came along and did it better. And then the motorways came along, and did it better than the railways. But, you know, so the, uh, the, the canals in England and Scotland and Ireland to an extent dwindled away and they became overgrown. And then in the 50s, people like Robert Aikman, actually, and uh, RTC Bolt, they got together and they, they said, no, we're going to recover these. They dredged them and made them fit for human transport. And so the old narrow boats, as they call them, have become a bit of a lifestyle thing. So you can go on a holiday, you can actually own one, and you live. And what it is is you just, these canals are not very busy. And you go at two miles an hour, honestly, there are towpaths where the horses used to pull, but now it's the little diesel engines or petrol engines. And so people, pedestrians, walk faster than you. And you kind of slow down and you're just in nature. You see it's like kingfishes and dragonflies and ducks of all sorts and other kind of things. And the cows look at you and you see the backs of houses and places and industrial units when you go through those that you wouldn't see otherwise. And it's a really slower pace. And, and we're going away for a week. This is our second time as a pure relax. Because I was recently in the USA. We were in Boston and New York and Providence. And that was not a relax. That was like full on. I loved it, but this is going to be a slowdown. So Sheila and I are going on this barge. And I think after day one, we just slow down. And the biggest decision you have to make is whether you're going to stop soon or whether you're going to have a cup of tea. Now, Sheila's dad was from Lancashire. We're going to the Lancaster Canal. So last time I was there, she got me this Eccles cake with butter on it. I never had that before. It's a Lancashire thing. And I liked it. So I'm looking forward to Eccles Cakes and Lancashire Cheese and maybe a couple or two pints of local Lancashire beer. But I'm looking forward to it. So I'm scheduling this in advance. The only other news I've got is, oh, Imogen's coming to stay tonight because she's working at the museum. I met an American bloke um, yesterday on work, walking on the Hadrian's Wall path. And we were. I was walking the dog, Shade, in my lunch hour. I was working from home. And I see this guy who looks a bit bewildered now, 
there are two psychiatrists walking in front of me. I happened to, it was just a coincidence. I happened to know them. So I said, oh, how are you doing? How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this guy, this American guy is walking Hadrian's Wall Path and he's walking from Newcastle and he's in Carlisle and he's going to head to the, to the very end on the Solway Firth, right where they built the forts to keep the raiders out. And um, the psychiatrist was going, where are you going? So I'm going to Bonus and Solway ultimately, except he said it in an American accent, obviously, which I won't do. And he, uh, she was going, well, you want to walk that way? She's South African, so... Okay, let's do the accents. He said, uh, I, I'm, I'm heading to Bonas on Solway, and uh, I don't want to lose the acorns. And there were these acorn signs. And I'm unhelpfully say, are these the Hadrian's Wall path acorns? Because I've joined in the conversation at this point. Are these the Hadrian's Wall acorns? I thought it was any footpath. And he's, he's right, actually. And he says to me, no, I, th I think it's just uh, Hadrian's Wall path. And then the psychiatrist who's South African says, Right, you need to go straight down by the river and keep on going till you get to the bridge. And when you get to the bridge, you go over the bridge. And, and she's absolutely right, but that isn't the Hadrian's Wall path. So in the end, I said, well, I, when she'd gone, she said, hi, Tony. Oh, she, she's wonderful. She was, when we were, we were just nurses, you know, and she would always make you a cup of tea. She was great, you know. You don't always get that in the hierarchy of things. and But she was great. And a really good psychiatrist. So if you ever get go mad, you want to see her. I won't r reveal her name. She's great. Uh, but we are all all the all the people and all the social workers, all the male social workers of a certain age, all thought she was absolutely adorable. Which which you know there she is. She's a wonderful woman. But she was going to mislead this poor tourist. So eventually she walked on with her psychiatrist. She said, "We're doing supervision." I said, "Well, I'm just on the map. No, we are we are working." And then, anyway, so. I said to this guy, right, you want to go over the bridge? And he was pleased because the acorns led him that way. And I said, if you walk past this kind of Roman monumenty thing, it's modern, but it's, uh, I said, it's not really great, but, you know, I'd like to see that. So off he went. Seemed a charming man. I wanted to start talking about the USA. You know, you go, I've been to America. Do you know uh, Harold Butterworth lives in South Carolina? You know, that kind of, people say that to me. You're from England. Do you know... <laughs> Do you know Mark Jones? Well, actually, I do. Lives in Wrexham. I do know Mark Jones. Maybe not that one. But anyway, so off the guy goes. And then I walk the other way around, and Shade is freaked out by a guy on a, a young man on a very loud motorbike going past, a very low CC thing. And she was really scared on the bridge. So I shouted, I must admit, a profanity at him because I was very angry. Anyway, back to the story. I, you can't go across the fields because they blocked the holes in the in the hedge we used to go through, so we have to go back. And we find out they're resurfacing the path. So the path I've sent this poor guy down is now, you can't get on it. It's all tarmac, steaming hot tarmac, and we can't go down. I think, that path's been there for 2,000 years, and the only day in 2,000 years it's been tarmacked, I sent the poor bloke down it, so he might still be wandering around Carlisle even now. Anyway, we got back. And uh, Lucifer Sam, the black cat, was outside. And I'm still hopeful that Shade and the black cat will become friends, but this isn't, they're not really friends. Shade saw Lucifer, and Lucifer saw Shade and looked and very nonchalantly kept on washing. Very, I thought, very deliberately making a, a, a the point, hey, I'm not fussed about you, I'm going to keep on washing. And then Shade suddenly bolted for the cat, and the cat ran through the hole 
Shade put her nose through the hole after the cat. And I said to Shade, you want to watch your nose because that Lucifer will scratch your nose and then you'll be sorry. Well, anyway, it didn't come to that. So all's well, it ends well. Okay, I hope you are all well. Remember, subscribe, like, um, share, uh, sign up, whatever you can do. Review, only nice reviews though. I don't want another one that says um, this boring, droning, un... What was it? Unmodulated, didn't use that word, but it's something like that. I don't want any like that. Please, if you feel that, write it on a piece of paper and then put it in the bin. Then you'll have got rid of your, your, your angst, but I won't have had to suffer. Anyway, another digression is now over. Goodbye.